You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. So here's a plug for my wife's cookie business. About 20 years ago, she started making chocolate chip cookies. And I'm not talking about the buy the refrigerated dough in a tube and slice it into cookie discs and then throw it in the oven and every cookie tastes exactly the same as everybody else in your neighborhood. She now makes the best chocolate chip cookies around and yes i'm her husband and yes i'm prejudiced about it but i'm also telling the truth i have seen dozens of times uh, when someone's offered a cookie for the first time uh, they're in a conversation they take a bite of the cookie they stop in mid-sentence look at the cookie in their hand just like their hand just caught on fire or something they are phenomenally good in fact here's here's a rundown of some of the things that have been said about them over the years they're amazing Uh, they're phenomenal all caps was tweeted just recently Uh, One man said they're a spiritual experience. Slap your mama good. If you're not from the South, that may not ring true. But if you are from the South, you know what that means. Uh, The best cookies I've ever had in my life. I've heard that so many times. uh, I can't even begin to count. So here's the thing. She opened a cookie business last year. It's called Sweet Life Cookies. It's right here in Nashville. And she's just got her website to where she can take online orders. So uh, these are small batch. Uh, she's a small batch bakery. She doesn't even have a storefront. It's, she works in a commercial kitchen, but it's fantastic. And now she can ship. So if you'll go to mysweetlifecookies.com, she has three kinds available right now. The original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, which is exactly what it sounds like. And then uh, the classic white chocolate macadamia nut available in dozens or half dozens. Shipping is via USPS and it's available countrywide. So uh, not internationally yet, though, folks. Sorry about that. Uh, But it's right here in the States. So that's MySweetLifeCookies.com, MySweetLifeCookies.com. And uh, I encourage you to order some today. I, I can assure you, you will not be sorry. Scott Heckinger was born and raised in Washington, D.C. and attended Duke University, where he received a B.A. magna cum laude in English, but is long called Brooklyn home. As senior staff attorney at Brooklyn Defender Services, Scott has represented thousands of low-income individuals accused of crimes ranging from low-level misdemeanors to the most serious felonies, from arraignments to hearings and trial. Scott is co-founder of the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund, an independent 501c3 charitable bail organization which pays bail so that low-income individuals can defend their cases from a position of freedom while remaining productive, stable, and united with their families. Scott's work and commentary has been featured in the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, Huffington Post, Take Part, Politico, The Brian Lehrer Show, Vice, and most recently, South by Southwest Interactive 2016. Scott graduated cum laude from New York University School of Law, where he was named a Florence Allen Scholar, served as articles editor for the New York University Journal of Legislation and Public Policy, and was awarded the Ann Petluck Poses Graduation Prize for Outstanding Clinical Work Requiring Student Practice. Scott Heckinger, welcome to Uncommentary. Glad to be here. Glad to be on the So you were in snowy New York. Are, are you in like, are you, you're a Brooklyn public defender. Is that right? Not like Bronx? Yeah, so I'm in, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm a public defender in Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn, which um, benefits me because I don't need to go into the craziness that is Manhattan ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I work in an office uh, called Brooklyn Defender Services. We represent half of everyone arrested in Brooklyn, which, depending on the mood of the NYPD, could be anywhere from thirty-five to 45,000 people a year. We Whoa. also have a, a big immigration practice and 
family defense practice, social workers, investigators, got civil rights attorneys, special litigators. And so we, we have our hands in just about every problem you can, you can imagine in Brooklyn. So are you one of those guys that like went to law school and came out and sued Pennzoil and made $60 billion and then felt guilty and started being a street lawyer? No. You know, I, I'm one of the I'm one of those those folks who went into law school uh, not wanting to do that. I went into law school. <laughs> sounds like super idealistic. Like, really, just wanted to put myself in the best position to help people less fortunate than me. I, I grew up in Washington D.C., so I haven't been okay. in Brooklyn my entire life, but grew up in D.C., surrounded by politics and politicians. But few, no one in my family was actually a politician except for my grandfather. He was actually the first chairman of the D.C. City Council. Wow. Uh, appointed by Lyndon Johnson, and, and he was really involved in the civil rights movement. He, uh, in his role as chairman of the D.C. City Council, desegregated the police force. And there's this there's this wall down in his basement, um, not with us anymore, I guess it, it was. There was a wall down in his basement, but I called the wall the wall of handshakes. It was him with these civil rights leaders shaking hands. Wow. Um, and I grew up just looking up to this guy um, as this person who, uh, you know, was privileged, uh, did uh, did not suffer in the way that my, my clients do, did not struggle in the way that, um, you know, the people who I interact with and work with every day do. Uh, but he used that privilege um, to look at, you know, his community, look uh-huh. at DC and try to do something to help. And so I was really, I've been driven by that for a long time. Um, and that's, that's why I went to law school. That's Looking awesome. to make the big bucks. I was trying to put myself uh, in a position to do what I'm doing now. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to law school, but ended up, ended up here, uh, ended up in thinking about criminal justice very, very early on. Wow, and then cool. uh, kind of diving in. Awesome. So, um, you know, we were kind of joking on in the pre-roll that, most Americans, uh, I'm older than me, they think Perry Mason is what the law is like. And in my age or younger, they think law and order is what the law is like. Um, and, you know, Hamilton Berger never did anything wrong. He was just a hapless dude, and Perry Mason was smarter than him. Uh, but Jack McCoy was cool, and, and you know, they always got their man and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it, it's not really like that. The I want to read you an excerpt. This is from an Amy Box book, Ordinary Injustice, and she's describing – Uh, the public defender system. And she said, arguably the best system is called the public defender structure in which full-time defense lawyers employed by the state are provided with central offices, secretaries, computers, investigators, and legal research tools. A public defender system aims to put the defense on equal or near equal footing with the prosecution. Now, is that idealistic or is that realistic? Uh, That is idealistic. I mean, what (laughs) what I'll say is there is idealism in it, if there was, you know, there would be truth to it if there was actually, um, if the laws, the practices set up within the system allowed for defense attorneys to be on the same playing field as prosecutors. Yeah. If you could have a well-oiled machine, well-resourced public defender office, and I'll tell you, I work in one of those. I work in an office that is blessed with uh, an extraordinary amount of resources, although we always could use more and, and we need more because unfortunately there's far too many people coming through the system. Mm-hmm. We're trying to expand our reach. Um, but we have computers. We have, uh, I have extraordinary colleagues. I, for every case, uh, I can uh, pull in an extraordinary social worker, an investigator. If they're immigration issues, I have an immigration colleagues and uh, immigration lawyer colleagues who I can pull in and really provide in every single case the kind of zealous representation 
that I thought that I wanted to yeah. coming out of coming out of law school. The problem is the structures that are set up, the laws that are set up are designed to put defendants and the accused in a position where at the end of the day, even with an office like that, even with zealous advocates, 95% of convictions are coming from guilty pleas, mm. right? And so, uh, you know, I found that out really early on. Uh, when I first, one of my first days uh, starting the public defender's office, I was working arraignments, which is the first appearance. It's where they find out what you're charged with, and you, you meet your attorney, me for the first time, and uh, the judge determines whether to set bail, which is an amount of money that you pay to get out of jail. Right. Um, and as long as you come back to court and consented, you know, you you uh, you get the money back at the end of the day. It's like what you see with Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, uh, where they walk in with in a suit, pay money, walk back right out again. They work with attorneys collaboratively from the outside while their case goes on. Right. Well, I saw right off the bat that that's not how it works for the vast majority of people. Bail, even on that first day, uh, courses people into pleading guilty on that first day of arraignment. Mm. Just whether they're innocent or guilty, whether they've been the victim of a bad stop and frisk. I, I went up to this, this client of mine, and he was telling me the story about this um, this very clear stop and frisk. And he's like, I'm not going to, very clear bad stop and frisk. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. Got off the subway, and his hands were right, uh, his pockets were rifled through by these officers' hands, told him that he smelled like marijuana, and found a, a, a crack cocaine pipe. And he wanted to challenge his arrest. He was really... He was really upset about it. And, you know, I'm sitting there diligently taking notes. I'm figuring out where the video cameras are going to be. I'm picking toward that suppression here where I'm going to challenge those officers right. uh, and hold them to the standard. And, uh, you know, at the end of the conversation, I mentioned offhand the prosecution's offering their time served plea, plead guilty to the charge possession. It'll go home. And that was the end of the story. I mean, he laughed at me. He was like, why have we been spending 20 minutes talking about my case? Um, I don't want to go to Rikers Island. And right. I... If I if I don't take this plea, that's probably where I'm going to end up. And so, you know, I I could have and I want to provide that kind of representation for everyone. Unfortunately, things like bail and other issues, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, put prosecutors and put yeah, put prosecutors in a position where they can um, they can exert that kind of power. They can exert uh, the way they're given power by the law in order to um, that, that puts them in a position really to be. Uh, empowered to drive mass incarceration rather than justice. What's the uh, what's the percentage of people who uh, and you, it's okay for you to estimate here if you don't know for sure. Uh, what's the percentage of people who plead guilty to a charge versus the people who are found guilty of a crime? That's right. Well, at ninety five ninety five percent of convictions come from guilty pleas, as opposed to being found guilty after trial. We go back to Law and Order. You watch Law and Order, and you get this sense that you know people are accused of crimes, that they are that they um, uh, are out to fight their case, on, and worst case scenario, bail that they can afford. Uh, they're coming back to court. They have all the evidence. They're able to work with their attorneys, and their attorneys, with that evidence, are allowed to uh, and the information are, are able to go out and do a full investigation. And then you have your trial and. Your case is presented before a jury of your peers, and they listen, and everyone's paying attention. And at the end of the day, they render a judgment, and that judgment is the right judgment. Yeah. The person is either found guilty if they're guilty, not guilty if they're not, and that's the end of the story. That's not how it works in practice right? Yeah, at all. Um, the is So plea bargains are, I mean— 
they're good for prosecutors because it gets uh, it gets a conviction rate that's high. I guess it's called I guess it's considered a conviction rate if they get somebody to plead guilty. Uh, and it's kind of if you'll plead guilty, it's almost like the hamburger today thing. You know, if you'll plead guilty right now, then uh, you can get off for this this sentence. But if you actually exert your right to a trial uh, and hope that you are innocent until proven guilty, then we're going to you know potentially put you under the jail. Um, it, it almost it it really to me makes a mockery of what justice is because it's essentially saying, you know, you're probably guilty of this, but if you'll just admit it, then we don't care how bad the crime was necessarily. But if you're going to fight us on it, then we're going to really put the screws down and try to get you thrown in for a long, long time. It seems like the whole process is skewed when it comes to actually trying to get a just ending to the situation. I I think that's right. And I can't speak to the you know the intent behind prosecutors wanting to get their conviction rates up or whatever i can say that there's not enough uh although there's increasing in some jurisdictions not enough celebration over uh in prosecutors offices over a resolution that ends an alternative to incarceration or drug treatment right but um what i'll say is you know it's hard for folks who who are not you know in the trenches frankly it's hard for me when i'm sitting across from my client who's incarcerated in records island and uh to, to understand how you know, someone could plead guilty to something that they didn't do or plead guilty to, to you know, uh, something to a crime, you know, the, the possession of something uh, if they if their rights were violated. Um, but, you know, when you when you think about the forces at play, right, you think about being locked up because you can't afford the, the amount of money to, to get out. Mm-hmm. You're sitting on a dangerous place like in, in any jail is dangerous, but Rikers Island, one of the most dangerous jails or prisons in the entire country. Your life is crumbling on the inside. You're facing you're, you're fearful. You're not paying your bills on the outside. You're separated from your family. Um, and in New York, at least, and it's something we're working on today, we're working on as we speak, uh, the discovery laws, so sharing of evidence laws. Uh, we don't have any information in most cases until the day of trial. Now, I saw, now, now pa- that, pause, right, pause right there just a second. I saw you tweet an article yeah. this week, I think, <laughs> that – so, so <laughs> I want to make sure I got this right, yeah. and then anybody who's yeah. listening understands this. In New York – there is no um, bringing over a stack of boxes from the prosecutor's office to your office three weeks in advance to show their hand. They literally can wait until trial or the day of trial to present their evidence? Yeah, I mean, forget three weeks in advance. In other jurisdictions, there's timelines where people get it within weeks, and they have, you know, at that point, the ability to investigate, the ability to work with their clients to determine, by the way, whether they should be going to trial at all to right. resolve the cases earlier in those cases. But to like have that mutual sharing of evidence early on can do a lot of great things. Forget three weeks before trial. I think even that's too late. But in New York, the law allows prosecutors to withhold evidence until the day the trial starts, and even after that. That so is insane. If, for, for witnesses, they actually don't need to turn over witness statements until that witness is sworn. They don't need to turn over certain evidence until the first juror is sworn. Has it, has, it always been it, the, very few, has it always been the way been New York? It's been that way since the 1970s. It's been wow. a four-decade-long problem. And while, and while all other states, Texas included, but Texas actually is number one in discovery. Governor Rick Perry, back in 2013, in his signing statement, as he's speaking, he's talking about law, Texas being a law and order state, and as such, we have a duty to transparency for fair outcomes, right? Uh, that was in 2013. We're far, far behind. We're in the wow. bottom four, along with Louisiana, Wyoming, and South Carolina. But to understand it, you know, people think, oh, my God, trial by ambush. And that's certainly a thing. But so few cases make it that far. Yeah. So you got to be thinking, for those 95% of folks who are pleading guilty prior to trial, they're making those decisions with no information. Yeah. 
none. So you, you so in New York, you can you know you're you're locked up, you don't know what evidence there is against you, and you're facing what, these mandatory minimums where the judge could be your mom, it could be your best friend, and under <laughs> the law they would not be able to sentence you to anything less than three and a half years. And what are you going to do if the prosecutor then comes to you and says you can risk it and go to trial? And you know, if you lose, at the end of the day, three and a half years is what you're going to get in prison and a violent felony record. But wow. if you plead guilty today, we'll give you, you know, an E felony, so a lower level felony and probation, and you'll walk. Or I'll, we'll give you one year. And even if you're going to be spending additional time in, you know, it's like this the, the, the feeling of homesickness. You know, you want to go home, but even if there's certainty that if it's a year out, that's better than the, the uncertainty of possibly doing a lot more. Right. And so the plea bargaining system is really a product of, again, those laws and uh, those laws that underpin the system, like mandatory minimums, like bail, like discovery and information sharing, like speedy trial, where some folks can just, like Lee Browder, be held for three and a half years and not have the speedy trial rights violated under the state law. All those forces drive the plea bargaining process. This isn't the process itself. Now, negotiations is a key piece, right? Negotiating, I, I, plea bargaining is a necessary part of the system. You know, there are risks always involved in going to trial, even without those. Sure. And you want to be able to talk with the prosecutor to come out with the best resolution in a case, at least be able to put my, my clients in a position of saying, look, here's the risk of going to trial. Here's the best we can do from a negotiation standpoint. The problem is these laws put them at such an advantage yeah. that um, – the right outcomes far too rarely wound up happening. That Khalif Browder story is one of the most gruesome uh, stories in America, recent American jurisprudence anyway. And I mean, every time I even think about that kid, it just breaks my heart um, how fumbled his entire situation was starting from the arrest all the way through until he eventually committed suicide after he was out. Um, I mean, now, is that an, is his an extreme case, or are we really looking at a lot of people? I don't, I don't mean get lost. I mean, he literally got lost in the system. But people who are in prison or in jail who aren't guilty of anything and who just get bumped and bumped and bumped for whatever reason, and then three years later or whatever, uh, you know, they're out and they never should have been in to begin with. I mean, is, that, is this a plague, or is, is, it, is he really an anomaly? It's a plague. I wow. think, you know, the length of time that he was locked up is the only anomalous part. But we're talking about a difference between three and a half years and like a lot of a lot of clients who are locked up in Rikers, two and two and a half. Wow. Uh, the factors that went into what happened to him are repeated every single day. It's 87 percent of the clients of mine who have bail set can't afford to pay it. Mm-hmm. Bail is, again, supposed to be supposed to allow you to get out. So it's supposed to be incentive, not a punishment. But the vast majority of people that are sitting on Rikers Island or sitting in jails across the country, 500,000 people detained pretrial, are there presumed innocent, only locked up because they don't have enough money. They don't have, they're not Harvey Weinstein, for example, right? Um, his case also didn't just have to do with bail and being locked up. He didn't get discovery because evidence wasn't shared earlier. If that evidence was, if he was locked up in Texas and he had gotten that information within the first couple of weeks, that is, his attorney would have been able to present that. Perhaps even the prosecutor would have paid more attention and got, in his case, might have been dismissed earlier. He, his, his attorney might have been able to make an application to the judge for release with additional information that showed that he was innocent early on. It also has to do with speedy trial. 
and other jurisdictions that have better speedy, better speedy trial laws, uh, he wouldn't have been able to be held for three and a half years, right? So all of these issues are issues that we are seeing every single day. Far too many people are locked up, far too many crimes. Um, they're locked up for far too long, and um, bad things happen. Um, but what I'll say is also people focus on cases like Khalif Browder because they are um, in some ways egregious, right? Like you, you, you hear three and a half years. In the right. same way that you hear about exonerations 15 years after the fact. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that, you know, I, that, that public defenders see every, you know, every day is that it's this, this kind of aggregate injustice. There are these, there are these like everyday injustices, these things that we see that kind of no one knows about. Um, these consequences that we see that few people know about unless you're the ones actually getting affected by it or you're seeing it from our side every day that, you know, I think it's really important for pe- more people to know about. And that's why in part I started to, started to tweet, you know, back in, back in July, I was on Twitter since like 2009 or something. Uh-huh. I wrote a couple of tweets. It was mostly a passive observer, observer. And I was sitting in court one day and, um, waiting we do a lot of waiting very <laughs> often we wait like for our cases to get called once we're in court so they can so, so they can call and, for mr hetchinger to come up yeah well they, they call my client's name and then you know i go up and i and we, we you know we, we do the case um not all not you know some of my days are spent in arraignments where it's you know i'm meeting my clients for the first time and waiting 10 to 15 people um, but the, the other days I'm going to court as the cases progress. But anyway, I'm sitting in court one of these days and, um, I see this thing that I've seen, uh, you know, a million times happen and my colleagues have too, um, that if you were sitting there, you would have no idea what would happen. What uh-huh. you would have heard is, um, an individual, what you would have seen her is individual pulled in from the back in cuffs, brought up in front of the judge and you would have heard, uh, plead guilty, pled, he pled guilty, uh, two months ago to 155, 25. Um, surcharge of 250 bucks, didn't pay it. He rested on a warrant, 10, uh, 10 days jail. He's back in within, I don't know, let's say the whole thing takes a minute and a half. But I understood what that meant was that a couple months ago, he was arrested. This individual who was about middle-aged young, uh, middle-aged black man, um, had gone in. I spoke with the attorney afterward and taken, I believe it was either a bar of soap or like beef jerky. It was like necessities or food and was charged with petty larceny. That's penal law section 150, 25 because mm-hmm. he couldn't afford to pay for any, for anything else. He couldn't afford to pay for food. He got cuffed. He got locked up. He got charged on that same day of arraignment to pled guilty to the charge to go home. In New York, there's an automatic surcharge of $250. And in New York, there's no way to waive that fine if you don't have enough money to pay. So the surcharge is, wanted- is just for showing up or just for being arrested? It's for being arrested. Okay. It's basically, if you get arrested, you're going to pay for your court costs. It's fixed and assistance fees. It's your public you pay. There's a $20 public, something like that, $20 public defender oh fee. It's a prosecution fee. So you're essentially paying your way through court. Um, but the option at that point of plea was civil judgment. Enter civil judgment and your 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 uh, your credit is affected by seven mm-hmm. credit is affected for seven years. Or um, you ask for, ask for time to pay. And that person didn't want bad credit for seven years. He wanted the option to try to pay. He didn't pay. He gets arrested on the warrant. And um, the only option at that point that the judge thinks is, is fair to do is sentence him for his inability to afford a surcharge. So that all happened in a flash. But I was able to see, know that yeah. this was happening. It's everyday injustice. And I took to Twitter and I kind of wrote my first thread. And I got something like 30 retweets, which is 30 more than I'd ever gotten. <laughs> and I was thinking, man, there's maybe 
maybe there's something to this. Maybe yeah. people, there is some hunger. Maybe there is some interest in knowing more about not just the big things, not just the visible things like police brutality and, and um, extrajudicial killings and stop and frisk and mm-hmm. on the front end and, and, uh, and jail and conditions of prison on the back end. But there's these little wonky things that, that happen in court that are really driving mass incarceration, that are driving the criminalization of poverty, that are driving a criminalization of addiction, that uh, really in the aggregate are communities that drive the system. So explain what you mean when you, you use two terms there, criminalization of poverty and mm-hmm. criminalization of addiction. Explain what you mean by that. Most people think about crime. When most people think about crime, they think about the serious stuff, right? Uh, they think about murders, attempted murders, rapes, robberies. That's a very small percentage of the cases that come through the system. The vast majority of the cases that are coming through and the arrests that are happening are for misdemeanors. And the majority of those misdemeanors are for what I call quality of life crimes or crimes of, of poverty. It's jumping the subway turnstile. In New York, turnstiles that you go through to get into the subway. And if you don't have enough money for transportation, which is critical in New York to get to appointments, jobs, job interviews, right. uh, child care, it's 275 550 round trips, a lot of money. It's an A misdemeanor punishable by a year in jail. For jumping, the turn, for, ju- for jumping over $2.75? For stealing, for stealing two seventy five from the MTA, it's a year. In, it's a, you face a year in jail. Do people actually do that? No. Like, but well, are yeah. you cuffed, brought down to the precinct, mm-hmm. fingerprinted, held in squalid conditions for twelve hours, brought to central bookings, uh, retina scan, brought in front of the judge, only to be told, you know, we're going to add another crime to your record. Maybe do ten, fifteen days. Maybe go home. Uh, yeah, that's what winds up happening, and it's far too great, right? So that's. That's a crime of poverty. It's a crime of inability to pay for public transportation, walking down the street, being addicted, having substance abuse disorder, struggling with addiction and being stopped and frisked and have in, in your in, if they find a, a crack pipe on you. Um, one of the most sinister arrests is for felony drug sale. Undercover officers will actually go to places they know where people who are addicted to drugs um, hang out and engage them in a conversation, pretend to be someone who wants heroin or mm. needs crack and says, if you go to your dealer and you buy me two bags and you give me, I'll give you a tip um, and I might even give you a hit. And they do that and they wind up arresting, not the dealer, but they arrest the, the middleman, my client, uh, for B felony drug sale. They face 12 years. That's a crime of addiction. 12 right? years. Crime wow. Of, crime of homelessness, right? Sleeping in a place where you shouldn't sleep. I'm not talking about in someone's house, but on the, you know, on the step, for example, it's misdemeanor trespass, a year in jail. Um, uh, being unable to afford uh, to pay off your tickets and you get pulled over for driving a suspended license. You face up to 30 days in jail. That's a misdemeanor as well. So the majority of folks that are coming through the system are being charged with crimes of lack of privilege, mm-hmm. of lack of money, um, things where if we instead reinvested the resources and the cost for that, it, that it, the cost of of arresting someone for jumping the turnstile, for example, and put it into free fares or subsidized fares where people who can't afford it, that'd be a better solution. If instead of arresting people for being addicted to drugs and then spitting them right back out again and only hurting their problem more, if we reinvested those resources in better and more robust drug treatment programs, we'd be way better off. For the homelessness situation, same thing. Uh, poverty alleviation measures, more affordable housing, there's better solutions. But I want to talk about really briefly also those cases that are violent, the scary-sounding ones, burglary, mm-hmm. robbery. Even those cases that, that 
2% or so of violent felonies that actually come through the system. Look deeper. Most of them are not violent, and most of them are not what you think. I'll give you a quick example, and I don't know how quick it is. I'll give you an example. Client who I represent a charge of burglary in the second degree, a violent felony, mandatory minimum three and a half years, max 15. Uh, the accusation was that he went inside a basement of someone's house and stole a laptop. Now, straight off the bat, he didn't see anyone. No one was hurt. No one was touched. Just because he went inside a dwelling under New York law, it's considered a violent felony. Wow. And it's considered burglary. Um, but beyond that, once I meet this client, uh, you know, I find out more about him, as I do with all my clients. And, and, you know, one of the first things I ever heard was from a mentor of mine, Brian Stevenson, is that everyone's more than the worst things that they've ever done. Which is true, but it's also the facts are always more complicated than you think they are. Mm -hmm. This is a man who grew up in Haiti, saw his an attempted murder of his mother. Uh, his mother died uh, while she was giving birth to his, his sister. He grew up among abuse, uh, starving, and ultimately made it to the United States, and his struggles continued with undiagnosed mental health issues and substance abuse issues. On this particular day, he, hadn't he was homeless and hadn't taken a shower for two weeks. Wow. And he goes up and he sees a house that looks like it's under construction and just wants to get some sleep out of the, co out of the cold, goes in, he sees that there's a shower, he takes a shower on his way out. He sees a bag and he takes it. But there's more to this story, right? He used, he, he resold, he, uh, he resold that laptop, helped uh, his family pay, his, his, uh, his father pay for some rent. That's not like I would condone this behavior, but there's more to that story, sure. right? Uh, is that violent? Is it, should this person uh, get 15 years? Should he get a mandatory minimum of three and a half years? And I fought and I fought for him. And uh, ultimately was able to get the, the prosecution, uh, along with my social workers, to agree to give him an alternative to incarceration program uh, to get in the mental health services that he needed and the substance abuse services that he needed. But I'm telling you, the robberies, people think about robberies. They think about people being held up at gunpoint. Most of them are 17 and 18-year-olds, maybe even younger, holding up other teenagers, not with guns, but with a threat and asking them for their cell phones. Wow. Uh, that's bullying behavior yeah. uh, in other in, in the suburbs, but it's a sea violent felony in New York. And so I think it's important for people to understand that we that our system is far too big. We arrest far too many people for mm -hmm. far too many things that shouldn't be criminalized in the first place. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we threw the criminal justice system at societal ills, yeah. and it was the wrong thing to do, and we're seeing the result of it today. Are there any... Uh major metropolitan areas in the United States that you know of that are that are starting to get this right, that are moving more toward uh, either treatment or, I think I've got a dump truck coming up my street here, there's a huge rumble in the back, um, uh, that are moving more toward uh, a prosecutorial and defense working together to, for best outcomes? Are there any major areas doing that, or is it still really driven by the plea deals and over-arresting and over-criminalization of everything. There's a lot of, there's a lot of positive changes happening in pockets throughout the country. Um, we're seeing that happen right now in, in Philly. So Larry Krausner is the new district attorney there. He's a former defense attorney and he's kind of the leader of this new crop of progressive, uh, progressive district attorneys. The thing that's different with him and that fortunately uh, the, uh, the district attorney in, in Brooklyn is starting to emulate some of this is that he's, he's unafraid and he's just going for it. Um, he's using, he recognizes 
the power of prosecutors to do to really hurt people, but also to really help. Right. The things that he's done is he started to decline to prosecute certain classes of cases. So wow. we just talked about decriminalization. There's two ways you can do that. One is through the legislature. Legislature can say, this is not a crime anymore, so stop giving the police that, that power. Uh, but the other way is that prosecutors, they're the gatekeepers of the system. They decide what comes in and what to ultimately charge uh, the person with. Right. So it's, it's whether to charge the thing at all. So he made the decision early on to stop prosecuting marijuana cases at all because he knew like in Brooklyn, the vast majority of the pieces, uh, the, the vast majority of the people who were being um, arrested for marijuana were black and Latino people. Mm-hmm. In New York, the number was 92 percent. Wow. No, it was 89 percent. 92 percent black and Latinos for uh, jumping the turnstile. <laughs> Both extremely high numbers. But wow. he saw that and he thought it was important in his job as district attorney to see that justice is done to send a strong message. We are not going to be uh, accepting any more of these arrests. We're taking a stand for justice and against racist law enforcement. Something else that he did is he fired a lot of people. Mm. He fired these middle manager um, prosecutors who'd been there for decades and who had that mentality of incarceration over anything else, certainly over rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. He also developed a memo and a standard in his office that instead of incentivizing incarceration and tough plea bargains, in, and requiring prosecutors to get permission to do the lenient thing, he reversed it. Now, if, in a plea bargain, uh, as a line prosecutor in Philly, if you are going to recommend or offer jail, you need to prove to him and his other and supervisors that work underneath him that the cost-benefit analysis works in the right direction. Wow! You need to justify jail over rehabilitation because he sees what we see when i'm having conversations with prosecutors i'm talking about opportunity now right now like i I meet prosecutors where they are i obviously am dedicated to my client and not wanting him or her usually him to um uh, to have an unfair outcome in his case i want the best outcome for my client it's always if i can if i can make it work uh no jail and uh, no crime on the record. Record, Depending on the case, we kind of see where we are, right? right. Um, but the conversations I have with prosecutors is recognizing that it's not just about my client, it's also about thinking down the road. So in the case of the three and a half years, three and a half years later, this person is going to be getting out, right? They're not going to go to jail for the rest of their lives. They're not being locked up forever. They're right. coming out. And if they come out, what position are they going to be in? Are they going to be in a worse position than they are right now, which got them to where got them to be arrested, got them to come through the system, got them to do whatever they're accused to do? Or do we have this opportunity that we shouldn't pass up right now to get this person the help that he or she needs so that instead of coming out three and a half years more damage, they come out two years from now, not in jail, but with a job, with stability, with the ability to be a productive member of society. He gets that. And what I'll say is that model is starting to rub off in other major jurisdictions in brooklyn are we at larry krasner no but our district attorney eric gonzalez has declined to prosecute and decided to to prosecute the majority of marijuana cases he's uh decided to start to to, to stop asking for bail in the vast majority of misdemeanors and it's started to become uh more nuanced in his decision around prosecuting um pressing for bail in even higher level cases and I'm seeing and we're, and I'm feeling that there's a, starting to be a shift um, in broader issues, too. So in Brooklyn as well, we actually have the best discovery practice, even though the law stink. 
in Brooklyn, for, for decades, they practiced uh, what's called open file discovery. So even though they're not required to turn it over, they do it way better than other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And we have the receipts to prove that it just works better than other places. So um, I'd say there is hope um, from at least the prosecutorial side. But the good news is for that, prosecutors have so much power that if they decide to use it for good, they can honestly end mass incarceration tomorrow. Yeah. They could, they, could, they could solve most of the problems that we have. That's amazing. Um, one, one thing you said earlier, I want to loop back around, and um, when you were talking about people being charged with uh, court expenses and arrest expenses and things like that, um, I remember after Ferguson, uh, maybe it was Radley Balco or somebody in the Washington Post did an investigation, and they found that um, an enormous amount of the arrests and court costs and uh, all the things that were taking place in Ferguson and, and these other two, little, two or three little towns around there that were kind of connected was almost as if the legal system, uh, the arresting part, was funding the, the city budget um, and the, the amount of tickets being written and things like that. Uh, they were funding, you know, it was making possible for more police officers to be on the job to write more tickets and et cetera. Um, is, is that a real thing in a lot of places or is that is that an anomaly? I can't speak to that, but what I can speak to is you don't have to look specifically at surcharges. I think, frankly, it, it depends on the municipality and the state where that money winds up going to exactly. What I can say, though, is the size of the system has become, has created a dependency on the size of the system, yeah. right? So yeah. um, the amount of court officers that are required, the amount of uh, defense attorneys, frankly, the amount of prosecutors, the amount of corrections officers, judges, police officers, um, who, you know, jobs now depend on essentially the currency of the incarcerated. This is why that when we talk about massive efforts to try to reduce the number of people in the system, if that happens, and hopefully it does, a lot of people are going to have to lose their jobs. Like mm. budgets are going to shrink ultimately. Yeah. Um, and so there is this feeling of the momentum of the system is self-perpetuating. <laughs> it's just, it's moving because um, it's as big as it is, and there's amount, the amount of arrests that they are because the police forces are huge. And the courts are able to process the enormous amount of uh, arrests because there's a ton of court officers and yeah. judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys to enable that process to continue and to grow, frankly. And so that is a very real thing. It's a very real dynamic that we need to be aware of. You know, like in New Orleans, for example, uh, kind of similar idea, they actually shrunk the size of their jails. They, they got rid of a number of prison beds. And what was the result? Less bail began to be set because there's actually a limit on the number of people that, right. that can be, be housed yeah. pre-trial in jail. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I, I see there being a similar, you know, similarity with this, but just going back to like currency of incarcerated, that's why you see bail bondsmen being obviously the, the strongest interest group against any kind of reform that would result in ending cash bail oh, yeah. because without cash bail, that industry would, would die. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a real, it's a, a real dynamic and, a, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of in the background, I think, in a lot of decision makers heads about what ultimately should can and should be done to uh, make the system fair to actually have a criminal justice system and not just this kind of mass incarceration machine that doesn't resemble anything. Um, close to justice. So, uh, two questions, right quick, um, as we're coming up against the clock. Uh, first is, <laughs> first is, um, 
what can the the average person in the average town do? So I live outside of Nashville in a little town uh, that would be considered you know a suburb. And Nashville is not even a major city; it's just a big city. Um, what can somebody do that's in you know Weetumpka, Alabama, or in Moose Jaw, or wherever, to make sure that their local uh, legal system doesn't turn into a you know a cash machine that begins to feed on the poor or the the underprivileged and then second um what are some books that really delve into what's going on or maybe just a book um you haven't written one right yet no okay i'm going you have to recommend somebody else's until you get yours published then uh yeah i wouldn't plug mine anyway even if i had one (laughs) (laughs) uh what's a book or books that that really will will lay bare uh the the non uh, law and order, blue bloods way of understanding the the legal system in America right now. Okay, so to answer your first question, I think the easiest and quickest thing to do is get to know who the top prosecutor is in your locality, whether it be you know uh, a town with a hundred, couple hundred people, or your, the city, a city of millions. Know who your district attorney is, or your your state's attorney, whatever they want to call it. It's usually a district attorney, mm-hmm. and. Um, get involved in knowing about when that person is going to be elected. Most prosecutors in the United States are elected and get to know about where they stand on issues like bail, pretrial detention, like evidence sharing, discovery, like speedy trial, like uh, the prosecution of crimes that shouldn't, in my mind, be crimes and maybe in their mind, too, this criminalization of poverty, where they stand on the balance of incarceration over rehabilitation. And then ask them those tough questions. Challenge them. And maybe even run for district attorney, too, if you happen to be a lawyer and you have better <laughs> ideas about it. But focus on the prosecutor at this point, right? Um, but with that, you know, in order to ask the right questions, also educate yourself. It ties into the second question. Um, so if, you, if you're looking at books, I think two that are, you know what, I'd say, yeah, no, I'll talk about two. Two that I think are, are good to read in tandem because they present the same Kind of they 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 cut the system down, but they mm-hmm. can kind of present two slightly different theories. And I think read together for, gives you a kind of a full picture. Number one is um, locked in by John Faff, PFFAF, um, and he talks about he's, he takes a really statistical the professor takes a really statistical approach to trying to understand how mass incarceration has been essentially created okay. how we went from these ideals and frankly they're just ideals because at the time of the framing of the constitution uh blacks were three-fifths of a person and the constitution really only applied to white landholding men right. um <laughs> but th- th- these ideas of the constitution that talked about a limited system of criminal justice a, ju- a justice system where the police were supposed to keep your hands off their hands off citizens a system that didn't have excessive bail and excessive punishment. Like, how do we get from there to uh, to mass incarceration? You take a real statistic-based approach, and it turns out a lot of what he finds has to do with prosecutors. Actually, the majority of what he finds. And the other one that you got to read in tandem with, but with John John Fath is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, which um, ties slavery through Jim Crow to where we where we currently are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just about talking about how racism plays a role in criminal justice for, for the sake of talking about how messed up our criminal justice system is. Uh, it, it's important to understand how racism, racism plays a role in order to get beyond mass incarceration, right? right. If, you, if, if You can't 
fix the system unless you understand how it's broken. Yeah. And one of the ways that it's broken is that it's tilted heavily against certain populations who uh, only live in certain certain areas. And so those two books in tandem, I think, are critical. But these days, I'll tell you, it's more than just reading books. Like getting on Twitter and, and following people who are in the trenches. Public defenders increasingly yep. are becoming more outspoken, are thinking about their roles as not just fighting zealously in court, but also bearing witness to what's happening in court as experts, as the folks who understand how all these laws intersect and also have really unique relationships with their clients to be able to share what's really going on in the day-to-day. And there's also great criminal justice reporting coming from the appeal, coming from Marshall Project, coming from BuzzFeed and folks like uh, Mike Hayes and Kendall Tagger talking about police abuse. So, so really try to try to get on the Twitter and find there's, there's a whole dorky world that I live in and that's uh, <laughs> criminal justice, uh, just criminal justice Twitter. And uh, you can, you, I, I learn a ton every single day to get educated, the way to get educated, read those books, but also um, read articles by, by folks that are doing, doing the work. Um, and if you're on Twitter, follow, uh, follow the folks that know what's going on. That's awesome. My guest today on Uncommentary Commentary has been Scott Heckinger with the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Defenders Services. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Uh, in Brooklyn, New York. And Scott, man, I really appreciate you being on today. Had a lot of fun. Thanks so much for letting me on. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher, mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or review system, if you would take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost a 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150, respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting Uncommentary financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron for as little as 2 bucks a month, swag level 3 bucks a month, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash uncommentary. That's patreon.com slash uncommentary. Now, if you'd like to advertise, and I can always use advertisers, then email me, martyduran at yahoo.com, and I'll get you a rate sheet for the remainder of Season 1. And then as soon as Season 2 becomes available, I'll send you one of those as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Marty Duran. Follow the podcast at Uncommentary Pod, And tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria. <laughs>